So it has been a little over, what, probably around 16, 17 weeks that I have had my new administrator job. And so for today's show, I thought I would share some of the things that I have worked on, some of the things I have learned in those 16 weeks. Um, so today's show might get a little bit technical, and I hope it's beneficial for everybody listening, but it maybe it'll be specifically beneficial for those in leadership, whether they be clinical directors or administrators. Um, and something that I feel like I've learned over the last few years being mostly in leadership when it comes to starting a new position and this strategy sometimes I think for the bosses over me is a little bit confusing, confusing maybe. I mean, it hasn't tended to be, but one of my main strategies when I've gone into new companies in a leadership role is to just kind of be quiet and observe uh, which which is kind of hard, and, and I try to do that for two to three weeks, which doesn't mean I don't work hard or tackle some things, um, you know, some of my own responsibilities, but I don't dive into everybody else's work and what they're doing necessarily during those first um, those first couple of weeks, two to three weeks, and I definitely did that here. And, and as I was putting together the notes for today's show, I went back and kind of considered my very first clinical director job. And I didn't do anything of the sort as like observe and just kind of wait in the wings and be somewhat quiet. Um, I was just anybody who's listening to this who was a part of that, uh, if you are, um, you probably remember. I remember like the first week we got a call early in the morning. It was only about 8 a.m. with a patient who had expired at one of our facilities. And I remember, like, I messed up right out of the gate on that new job because I paged out, hey, this person has expired, who's going, and probably only gave everybody about five or seven minutes to reply. And I remember sending something out like, this ain't how we're going to run this operation. I don't know what y'all are thinking. And I jumped in my car and drove out there in this mad dash. And when I look back on that retrospectively, it was just a terrible way to handle things. Just right out of the gate, loud and obnoxious. I don't know what I was trying to prove. Um, I wish I could go back and get into my mind in the moment. I think I just, I don't know if I was overcome by the responsibility I had. I don't know. Any of you who worked with me at that first job, feel free to reach out to me <laughs> and tell me this is why it was dumb for you to get all worked up. You know, I was, I'd only been in hospice for a little under three years and I don't know, I, I just, I didn't handle that great. And I think since that time, as I have moved into leadership at other places, I've tend to spend the first couple of weeks trying to get settled, working on myself, getting myself organized, getting more familiar with the EMR, uh, just looking back over the work that the organization does and not getting too worked up right away over clinical or the processes that are in place. And um, 
And I certainly did that here at this new job where I came in and I was just quiet for a couple of weeks. I, I wanted to build relationships with the people who were already there and not set this precedent that I was going to come in swinging a hammer everywhere. Um, and, and I think it went real well. So for today's show, I'm going to review some of the things that I did have worked on after those first two to three weeks came to a close. And hopefully maybe you can learn from what I learned and come up with some of your own ideas for your organization. This is James Dibbon and welcome to the hospice nursing podcast. Well, hello, fellow hospice nurses, and welcome to your show. That's right. This is the only show that provides practical help for hospice nursing success. I'm your host, James Dibbon, with ConfessionsOfAHospiceNurse.net, and thanks for checking out the show today. Well, hey, thanks again for downloading the show. I appreciate uh, everyone who reaches out to me uh, to share their thoughts on the show and uh, whether or not it is helping them. I hope that you will take a few minutes to leave a review in your podcasting app that you like to use. And uh, that just helps get us to the top of search engines and can, can get this show spread to as many nurses out there as possible. So, as I talked about in the teaser there, it was a long teaser, uh, but uh, anyway, th this episode might get a little technical, but I think, I think it's going to be helpful uh, as I work through the notes for today. Basically, I took on three major projects since starting, and I just finished the third one, uh, and I'm contemplating my next project, uh, but, but I feel like I've gotten really big three important ones out of the way. And so I'm just going to share those with you today. And so you can get an idea of what I did. <clears throat> Maybe it'll be something you'll want to do in your organization. Maybe your organization already does this. Uh, and, and really your organization does all three of these items to different levels of success and depth. And so my goal for our organization was to take these processes deeper, excuse me, deeper than they already were. So don't hear me saying, sometimes my pastor says, listen to what I'm saying, not to what I'm not saying. So at no, in no way am I saying my organization didn't already do these things. But when you join a new organization, especially if you're going to be clinical director or administrator, you're going to want to tweak things a little bit the way you like them, or you might see some holes or gaps in how they're doing it already, or maybe you just don't understand and you're like, I need to rebuild some of this in a way that I can understand. So 
what I'm not saying is that the organization I'm with did not already have these things in place, but I wanted to take them to a bit of a deeper level. And so I hope as I go down my checklist, which is kind of long, that you will just see what I've tried to do here. And you might want to try to do the same thing at your organization. And what I'm going to share here might give you some footing to accomplish these three things. So the first, uh, so the, the three items are this room and board tracking for our facility patients and then our orientation program for all new staff. So everybody, not just nurses, but social worker, chaplain, uh, just all the different disciplines. Um, and then I totally revamped our admissions process from the moment we get the referral till when the nurse completes the admission, uh, or at least, you know, is with the patient and introduces us and the patient signs consents and, and they're officially on our services. So not necessarily the second the nurse completes the admission visit and assessment, but leading right up to that moment. So I'm just going to track through these items with you today, and I hope you find it useful. So for those of you who are in leadership, you might get some ideas. For those of you who are in the field and maybe haven't done leadership or thinking about it or not sure, I think it might give you some insight into how complicated it actually can be to be administrator and or, and or clinical director. I think sometimes it's easy when we're in the field to just go, what are they really doing there in the office while I'm out here busting it with a caseload of 15 maybe or more? And there's, there's no way they're working as hard as me or whatever. And um, maybe this will give you a little bit of insight into that. And if you're out in the field and considering leadership, this will definitely give you some insight into some things that leadership could be spending their time on or maybe spending their time on and you don't realize it. And all of a sudden you get a new announcement or a, a training or a meeting invite and they're going to roll out and I can't ramble on too much here because we're 10 minutes in already and I have three major projects I want to share with you. But let's just assume we all work hard. Like, okay, you know, and, and it's dangerous for any of us to assume somebody else isn't working hard. Um, and, and I'm going to, I might get into that a little bit here at the very end when I kind of button up the show. But for now, let's just, roll through these items and uh, I'll just share my thoughts, what I did, what I learned. Um, and so the, I'm taking them, these aren't exactly in order that I accomplished them. Okay. Uh, especially the first two, because I, it took me a long time. The first item I want to discuss a little bit is the room and board tracking. So here's the thing. Now, this show goes right to lots of different states. I get communication back to folks from a lot of different states. And so different states handle the room and board with nursing homes differently. And I've certainly not researched them all because I'm here in the Kansas City metropolitan area and we operate on both sides of the state because Kansas City, there's a Kansas City, Missouri, and there's a Kansas City, Kansas. So um, kind of like the Twin Cities or whatever, I think. Um, but so they're two separate cities, one's in Missouri and one's in Kansas, like we're right on the state line. So I'm familiar with 
Missouri and I'm familiar with Kansas, but I, I haven't taken time to learn the other states. So to keep it kind of succinct is that when we have a patient in a nursing home where state Medicaid is paying for their room and board, Kansas and Missouri, and I think a lot of other states, for some strange reason, once you admit that patient in the facility, their room and board funding passes through the hospice. So I I can't even begin to understand why they do this. And you're welcome to send me an email at james at confessionsofahospicenurse.net if you happen to work for the state and know exactly why this is done. Uh, It's going to be hard to convince me it's a great idea as I get into this. But um, in Kansas and Missouri, we admit a patient. So we'll just stick with Missouri for now. We admit a patient at a nursing home into our care where the state of Missouri's Medicaid is paying for their for them to live at the nursing home. Well, as soon as we admit them, they also have to sign a Missouri Medicaid uh, election of hospice only just for their room and board. And what happens is on that day, the nursing home stops billing Missouri Medicaid for the patient's room and board and starts billing us, the hospice provider. And then Medicaid pays us instead of them. And I I don't understand why we're doing this, uh, but the state certain, certainly hasn't called to get my opinion on whether or not they need to keep doing it because I'd tell them no, uh, because it is complicated because we have to take that form and send it to the state. And then at the end of every month, the nursing home will send us the room and board bill for that patient for staying at the nursing home. Now we don't get a bill for medications. Like it's just straight up the room and board, which is like around here in the Midwest, it's around 200 bucks a day. So you're looking at, you know, $600 or $6,000 to stay at a lot of these nursing homes. Some of them are a little less, but the point being is that now all of a sudden there, the nursing homes revenue passes through us and So one project that the owner of the company wanted me to take on was a real solid room and board tracking program, a tracking system. And, and I built it all with an Excel spreadsheet to do it. And, and I just thought it might be helpful for me to review that and talk a little bit, um, you know, and it, it took me three to four weeks to build this thing. And it's not, I didn't spend, you know, every day on it. it. It was just this side project I was working on, but it took a long time because there was so much about the room and board pass through that I just didn't understand. And, and the patients have their portion sometimes, like if they go into a nursing home and they, and they have an income of $2,000 a month, well, the nursing home takes that and bills the difference to Medicaid. So if it's a, if, you know, if it's 6,000, then the nursing home collects two from the patient. And so then they bill Medicaid for 4,000. And so now they're going to bill us for 4,000. And this is why you got to keep really good accounting in your organization, right? Because you can find yourself losing money real quick, trying to manage this room and board money. And here's what's really strange. Let me look here. I'm going to go through my notes. I don't want to do this out of order. Um, and so, you know, I my my office 
my my office manager has really had to help me a lot because she has been doing Medicaid and Medicare billing for many, 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 many years. I mean, most of her working life has been doing this. So she has really had to work with me and help to help me understand a lot of this. Um, and so what I want to do is I want to kind of review the spreadsheet that I built. And I know, you know, I'm going to look at the spreadsheet and this is makes for really great radio, uh, so to speak, that I'm going to try to explain a spreadsheet to you with no visual assistance. Um, but I want to help you understand how complicated this part of being a hospice provider is. And I understand why some organizations have, if they have a strong community presence where they don't really operate in nursing homes, I can understand why they might not want to jump into it because this is complicated stuff. And I think this tool that that I built, and, and I got some help. Like, don't sit here and think I did all on my own. I worked with our accounts payable uh, person, and she built some of it and kind of taught me some of the tricks because we use Google Sheets and taught me a few tricks in there that I wasn't aware of. And so I took what she built and I made it a little more detailed for my own purposes. And it's what we're using now. And I'll just kind of explain it to you and how it works. Okay. So the the most important thing about this tracking when you've got somebody who goes in on room and board is you really need to be sure to track when they come on your hospice services because we need to make sure that everybody is billing everybody correctly, right? So, for instance, if somebody comes into our services on the 22nd of a month that ha- of like June because June's got 30 days, that's one thing I'm learning is I'm learning which I don't have to quote 30 days has September, April, June, because I'm it's really being memorized now because I'm tracking all these patients every month. But if somebody comes in our services, excuse me, on the 20th of the month, then I go to the spreadsheet and I enter a new a new page for them specific and I start it. I start it in the middle of the month and document what day they come into our services. And then I have to do the same thing when they pass and leave our services, I've got to close, close out this spreadsheet. And, and so I'm going to review this with you. I'm going to try not to spend too much time here, but just to give you an idea of what I did. Now, here's one of the ugly things about when there's a Medicaid pass through. And, and I think this is going to be for every state. I know it's here in Missouri and Kansas, and I, I might've even seen some regulations from Medicare on it. I could totally be wrong. So Please understand when I'm talking the financial side and billing on hospice and stuff, there's a lot that I am still learning. So it, this is some of this could be inaccurate. Now, for the state I'm in, it's not. That's all. I mean, I have worked on this. It may have taken me three to four weeks to build the spreadsheet and the tracking system, but I feel like it's that I have been working on all of this, learning it and getting better at it for the full four months I've been at this organization. But so anyway. When once that pass through starts to happen, when Medicaid pays us, the hospice provider, they withhold five percent. And it it's just ridiculous, but I guess it's because of their you know, they have to hire somebody who processes all of this. And so 
literally they only pay out 95% of what we're billing them, which means we're getting 5% less than what the nursing home is going to bill us for. And each organization is probably going to handle this differently. And so I'm not going to really speak to uh, how you should handle this 5% that Medicaid is keeping. Uh, best practice is probably when the nursing home bills you to eat the 5%. If you have a good relationship with this facility and they're sending you lots of patients, you might have to just pay the full room and board. But you're going to have to work that out with each individual facility and see what their expectation is. But this, if you're going to lose money, know that you are. Does that make sense? Like if you get a bill from a nursing home, you need to at least understand everything about that invoice. And if you're going to pay exactly what they're billing you, how much are you getting from Medicaid? And, and this was my whole concern when I took the position because I was like, I want a zero balance budget. Or at least I want to know whether or not we're breaking even, losing money, making money, what's happening with this room and board business. Because if you have a slow leak of money and don't even know it, you're you're in danger here for your organization. If you are losing 5% each month, uh, you know, because you're going to go ahead and pass 100%, you're going to make sure that that nursing home gets paid 100% of what they would be getting if you weren't involved, then, and you're going to lose you're giving up that 5%, that might, you're going to have to weigh that as an organization and decide, do we want to, are we okay with that? You know, well, I mean, yes, because they give us 10 referrals a month or 15 or whatever. Like it, it's worth the difference. Like let's keep, this is a good relationship. Let's build this. And so you just have to decide that as an organization, but let me just run down this spreadsheet and give you an idea of what we're doing. I got it pulled up here on my tablet and I want to just kind of explain it to you. So, so it just runs from left to right. Okay. And we have a patient name and facility cause I like to track the facility we're in. We, we have a date, um, the date that their bill was received. Okay. And then I have their invoice amount as we track across it. So we can see how much they have billed us. And then I have check boxes that I use for if I approve something to be paid. So my accounts payable person will not cut a check to that facility unless I have clicked the box to approve the invoice I get sent. Then we have the date that we paid them and the check we paid them with, but we also have a link to the invoice that they have sent. So at any time we can just click in this spreadsheet and pull up the invoice to review it. And then I have a billing period, which is simply how many days of the month they were on service. So if somebody, you know, I'm just looking at March for a patient, and that patient was on service the entire month of March, which was 31 days. And that's important to keep track of so that we can, you know, check our billing to make sure we're billing, you know, the, the 31 days for that month. Then we have a checkbox if it cleared the bank. But we also, this is something I don't think, organizations are doing a whole lot is I have a section for to put in when we get paid by Missouri Medicaid and how much they paid us. And then the final tab. So there's like, it goes all the way to L like, I'm not going to sit here and count them, but you guys know how spreadsheets work. It goes all the way to L. And so what happens is when we get an invoice, we, we, 
we also put in how much Medicaid paid us, and the spreadsheet does the math and also spits out a balance. So it the spreadsheet will let us know whether or not how much we received from Missouri Medicaid versus how much the nursing home billed us. So we can see if it's a negative number, that means if we pay the invoice in full, we will have lost money technically. We are in the hole on that month financially. Uh, but if we only pay, so so the sometimes it's a positive number. And that happened here recently because we had a patient that Missouri Medicaid was paying us the full monthly fee from the nursing home minus the 5%. Okay. Don't forget that 5%. The nursing home was, or the, the state of Missouri was paying us the full, let's just say 6,000. But when the nursing home sent us their invoice, they had 2,000 that the patient was responsible for and that his estate or family, it was coming out of his income. So the state of Missouri didn't realize that the facility was collecting this $2,000 a month. And so on my spreadsheet, it shows a positive difference every single, every single month of money. And so do we get to keep that money because the state of Missouri did not deduct the patient portion? Oh no. (laughs) If somebody's coming for that money, right? That isn't our money. It got paid too high. And so I went straight to the, like the general manager and told him, Hey, I need you to see this. I need you to be aware this is going on uh, because I see what we got paid by Missouri Medicaid and I see what the nursing home has billed us for. So we paid the nursing home their portion of that invoice. And we have this positive number for every single month that patient was on before he passed. And so we're all very aware that this uh, that this money is probably going to Medic- Missouri Medicaid is going to come back and want it. And here's how you know that, because within a few days of me finding that out, this patient's family called me because they got a lien against his property from the state of Missouri for all these expenses. That's very normal. Right. If you're going to use the state to pay your bills, they have the right to come after your estate after you have um past to make up the difference. I mean, that's just the way it works. That's the way the world is. And so the, the family member called me and I was, and so I was able to kind of communicate with him what I had saw on my end. And I said, you know, you're going to have to get with the facility and the state of Missouri because, you know, the state of Missouri is going to want this money back from us and you should get a credit on your end. I mean, you see how circular this is. Um, this spreadsheet has been a lifesaver because we also got another bill just yesterday from a facility that I could tell in their accounting department they had not given us credit for the money we had sent them. And so we were able to go back to the spreadsheet and review every single month because I put a new line in for every month. I don't I don't group stuff together. So here we're in August. I've already started August rows for all all the patients that are in facilities so that we can track how many days if they pass in the middle of the month, I'm going to go in and I'm going to say it was August 1st through August 20th. They were on service and I'll put that in the spreadsheet and we'll be looking for bills. And we use this to verify that we 
um, invoiced everybody. So I know that was kind of long. <clears throat> this is really important from an accounting standpoint. I've never thought of myself as an accountant, but being an administrator, it is definitely part of the job. And I was a little nervous about it in general because I was just like, I'm not, I don't, I'm not really an accountant. Um, but it, I've, I've actually enjoyed it more than I thought I would, at least most of it. Um, and it's definitely been important that I've implemented a way to track. So if in your organization, if you're high up there. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I have had some members at the hospice nursing community request some kind of a support group to help fight burnout. And so I have started two burnout support groups at the hospice nursing community.com just to help everybody. And so these support groups meet twice a month on the second Thursday and the second Sunday of the month. And so we're going to be doing that. And I wanted to make sure you understood or knew that these will be faith friendly support groups. And it doesn't mean they'll be preaching or anything strange like that, but I might use devotionals. I might pull something out of the Bible, maybe out of Psalms or something, but just there might be sections of the, uh, of the group that deal with matters of faith. And, and I hope that is of interest to you. Uh, it can be found in the community events, uh, section of the community. So if you would consider joining, I think it would help you. It's going to help me. I need it, I think, as much as anybody does. So join a burnout support group at thehospicenursingcommunity.com. And, and you have maybe a small organization that you do a lot of the building internally on your own. This is something that's really important to be watching. I, I had not realized how involved and complicated this could actually be. So the room and board thing, that's just one of the big projects I took on. I hope that's some useful information for you. I hate to stay on it too much longer because it's a little dull, if I'm being honest with you. Um, But I I feel good about it. It's been super beneficial for me. So uh, one thing I haven't put on the – my original spreadsheet that I built did have the patient's – what they owe on it. And this one does not, but it tracks what the facility bills is for versus what the state bills is for. And if there's this massive disparity there, then it just prompts us to look into it to figure out why. So that's enough on that. Ooh, numbers. Yee. Uh, so the next project, so that project has been just kind of ongoing and, and it'll probably never end because it's something that happens every month. And I feel like every week that goes by, I learn a little bit more about it. So it's been good. Uh, need a drink of water. Sorry. So the first, so that has been an ongoing pro- project. So I don't, I don't know where to put it in the list of one, two, three, you know, which did I do first? But the first major program that I feel like I built was our orientation program. And because I just, I feel like everybody needs a real strong start in hospice, right? For any organization, we need to really show them that we put some effort in there starting with our organization. And and this organization had a, a start plan, uh, but I wanted to really build it out and make it much more robust. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to review a little bit of what I created and what it looks like, and you might find that useful for your organization. 
or if you live in Kansas City and you want to work for a company that puts a lot of work and effort into uh, a great orientation program, hit me up. Maybe we have an opening. There's a sales pitch for my organization. <laughs> but but let me talk a little bit about what I did. So it took me about three weeks to build this. And it it came with a binder. Now, maybe you're like, uh, our organization already does a binder. Great. Uh, a lot of organizations don't. It's just kind of, hey, welcome to the team. Here you go. There's your tablet. And here's a nurse. Go, go, go. Uh, but I have found that... <sighs> You're leaving when you do that, a lot of stuff gets missed because the nurse you're putting with you, the nurse you put your new nurse with, she's just going to train her based on what she runs into every day. And what if in the first couple of weeks, certain things aren't, uh, aren't like dealt with or used or certain tools aren't used, and all of a sudden it's two months down the road. And you're finding out your new nurse doesn't know how to use certain tools. And so what I wanted to do was make sure that literally after the first day, uh, and certainly after the first week, the a new nurse or whatever department, new chaplain, new social worker, that they had experienced all the different tools that were available to them, at least at least a chance to see them and get logged in and a way to keep track of their uh, passwords and all those kinds of things. So I decided to build an orientation program that at least makes sure the first week of orientation is really organized in a way that makes sense and really helps them feel like they've gotten this really strong start with a company and they don't end the first week wondering, you know, what they don't know or what got missed. Uh, and so I just want to review that a little bit on here and talk about it a little bit. So it's, it's kind of interesting what I built here. There's, I, I got real, uh, checklist happy. And so because we do all of this in Google, but you could do this in any type, like if you use Microsoft for your organization, we use Google for some reason and, and I actually like it, um, but you might use a Microsoft where you have shared drives and things like that. And, and so what I built, um, multiple branches can use when they, when they onboard new staff and it, it has like its own instructions that are pretty cool. If, if we do them right. Um, let me sort some files here. Like I said, this is kind of technical, but it's what I got for you today. If you're getting bored and need to move on, I totally get it. But um, I, I just felt like this was really important. So here, here's the main thing. So we have an orientation binder that we build and anybody can build it because of the kind of instructions that I made. So if let's just say you were logging into the orientation program that I created for this organization and you opened up the folder that that the orientation program is in and let's say you're going to orient a, a new nurse coming up here in about two weeks, then you have R, the RN orientation instructions that you will print. And if you take that instruction that has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So it has eight checkboxes. So anybody can do this. It doesn't have to be a clinical person. It could even be a volunteer could literally create this. 
because all they do is they print up the instructions, lay them in front of themselves, and follow down the list. And I'll just read these instructions to you. And it says, use the onboarding template to create an email and send to the onboarding email group. So our our HR department, we have an onboarding email that we would send out. So we would send out that email and it goes to them and they go and, and it'll have the pay, the person's start date and everything on it. So you do that. And then you create a new folder in this orientation uh, folder, right? You create a new folder and you put the nurse's name on it and their start date. So it keeps top of mind when this nurse is starting. Then <clears throat> I created a trunk stock, uh, uh, like a generic trunk, trunk stock um, checklist. And what you do is you, you take that file and you make a copy and you place it in the folder and then you fill out the, the nurse's name on it. And it's just basic items, right? I got with my clinical director and I said, okay, what, what's a good start for somebody's trunk stock? And, you know, Foley catheter, you guys know all the basics there. And so we order a trunk stock order. We put in a trunk stock order with our supply company. And so when all that shows up, we throw it in a tub for the nurse along with the checklist for everything that's in there and has the nurse's name on it. And we toss that on top of it and we close it and we stick it in the corner. And so now the day the nurse shows up for her orientation, the first day, we already have a tub to hand her that has all the trunk stock in it. You know, blood pressure cuff, if we're going to do that, oxygen saturation you know, device, if we're going to do that. But that's the third item on this list is get the trunk stock taken care of. And I just love that. Like we've had a couple of nurses come through already and we've just slid the box over to them on their first day. And they're like, what the heck? You know, and I've never gotten that anywhere I've ever worked where I show up on my first day and they hand me a tub with trunk stock. No, I'm going back to the supply room, digging around, trying to find stuff in a room I've never been in. So I really like that. So there's also something called the RN orientation checklist. And this is a big spreadsheet I created that lists all the apps that they will have on their devices with all the default passwords on it. It lists all the stuff that they need for HR is just a double check. Um, it, it just, it includes every little thing. Okay. On, on this checklist for them. So they can kind of see everything that they need. It will even list the different types of visits they need to have experienced in our EMR and a place for them to put a date. So they kind of have this nice checklist. And if there's any gaps in it, they can ask somebody, hey, I, I haven't gotten this, you know, or I don't know this. And it's all in their binder. So if they're having any difficulties hunting down or remembering passwords or or an app, they can they can pull it up on this checklist that's in their binder. Um, and then we have an orientation schedule that I built for them for us to be able to fill out and map out their very first week of orientation. Um, there's also, and then it says on here, print the binder checklist and use this to ensure binder is complete. And then the final one is, oh, wait, you know what? We don't need that. See, I'm updating the orientation as we go. One item I have on here is print the RN forms folder checklist and add the forms. So at one point, 
I was going to have them put like a revocation form and all these different forms in a binder. But I discovered that our EMR actually has all of that stuff built into it. So we don't need it. So you, you've printed the RN orientation instructions and you've followed the six steps on there. One of the steps is to print the binder checklist for the nurse. And I love this because this makes sure her binder or his binder for those few of us male nurses out there, um, we make sure that we have everything in their binder that they need. And there's a binder cover so we can put their name on it and say, hey, well, you know, this binder, orientation binder for Nurse Jackie. Um, and then there's a welcome letter that goes in there. And and I sign that and it just says welcome. You have to fill it out because it says, hey, welcome to the team. We're happy to have you here. Here's who your personal mentor is going to be. And here's their phone number. So be sure to reach out to them with any questions you have. So instantly they already have a name of a coworker, probably the nurse that's going to do their orientation or another chaplain and or whoever it needs to be. This is who you're going to call. It has a the RN, the binder checklist has a phone list. I created a phone list that we keep up to date. So it already will have a phone list in there of all their coworkers, the chaplain, the social worker, everybody. And so they'll have that. Then it has their orientation schedule. And I'm going to talk about the first week schedule here shortly. Um, there's a, there's a sheet on there that uh, for apps to install that I created because we use probably five or six if you're a nurse, probably even more than that apps that you put on your phone. And so there is a sheet that has all of the apps they need to have. Um, it has login um, to make sure we have our different logins. There's a um, job description that I make sure goes in there. Uh, we use in Clara for our scripts. So I put a copy of our Inclara prescription card in there. So if they have to call something into a local pharmacy, there's a skills checklist in there for during orientation. You've got to get their skills checked in the first 90 days. Then there's an admission checklist in there just to show them uh, what is expected in an admission. Now, the third project I work on was our admission program. And so that one there uh, I'll probably pull this out and we'll, we'll end up having a separate binder that's all about admissions. So I built this before I built the admission program. But we also put a sample notice of election in there, uh, our on-call pay rates, our forms we use for extra pay for if you do on-call. I have something in there explaining how we handle respite. I also have in there the 90-day uh, performance evaluation evaluation. I put in some nurse documentation tips and tricks, and I put in instructions on how to use our EMR for certain types of visits. Then I have an office checklist. And what we do with this is we use this to make sure that the, our new employee that we've created logins for everything and that we've added them to the PTO calendar, the IDT calendar, our stand-up and stand-down phone calls. It, it just makes sure that we have connected them to everything they need before they even walk in the door, okay? Um, and then what I do, one of the check items on here is the all-staff welcome email. 
because I make sure on their first day, by the end of that day, I send out an email to all the staff letting them know, hey, Nurse Jones started today. Let's give her a big welcome and all of that. And so basically when they walk in the door, they have a binder with their name on it. And we have done all of our work before they even walked in the front door to make sure that they have everything they need, their trunk stock, all their sign-ins for everything. This is, you know, a large, a great big, huge corporation. They have people in the background doing this, you know, in some corporate building somewhere in another state. But those of us who run smaller hospices, we don't have those kinds of things most of the time. Uh, we're, we're, we need to build that ourselves at the local level. And so, uh, you know, and we need something that's very repeatable and and that every single person who walks in the door who's a new employee, they feel like we've been intentional about their arrival. And I just think that sends a huge message. The first few people that I've put through this orientation program have had a lot of positive well, they've had both kinds of feedback. They've said, you know, this went really well and this didn't. And I've yanked stuff out and put new stuff in. And, and I need that feedback. Uh, so let's talk about the first week and how I handle that with new staff. Um, so the first week is a pretty set in stone schedule. I like to have a Tuesday start. I just... If your organization has an HR department and they're going to use and, and they're going to take a whole entire day, then, you know, they might have Monday starts. But I have found that for smaller organizations, it is really hard to do a Monday start uh, because Mondays are just busy, right? You're cleaning up after the weekend. You're checking on patients. You're looking at the charting from over the weekend. Who knows what all you have going on on Mondays? They're busy. So I've made it where our starts of for employment are the Tuesday before our IDT. We do IDTs on Wednesdays. And so our new staff orientation starts on Tuesday before IDT. And that's, that is strategic. And so the nice thing is when we're looking to bring somebody on, I'll just say, okay, here are the two Tuesdays this month or next month that you can start or whatever. Now, if we're in a bad way, staffing wise, and uh, all rules can be broken, right? The 90-10 rule applies. I like to mention that rule all the time. But <clears throat> um, but so that's our rule here is Tuesday before IDT. So in day one, we have, they spend time with our HR, but that is fast. That's only about an hour or so that they're with the HR person, making sure they brought in all their documentation, all their documents there you know, I nine and all that stuff. And then also they'll make sure they're set up in payroll and got their and payroll is up and working right. Um, they, they make sure during that morning session that, that, uh, that our new employee goes out and we give them, they get like $150 worth of a scrub allowance. And so they send them off to do that and get their TB tech checked. And that's all done till about lunch. And then after lunch, they come back and I have them sit down with one of my office staff to get logged into our EMR the first time. And then to also, um, to also, show them just general basic uh 
how to get around in the system, how to pull up a patient chart and look through the chart, how to look through other nurses' documentation. I don't want it to be, it's not going to be super in-depth because they're going to get a lot of that from the nurse that they are writing with or the other chaplain or whoever. I'm not looking for my office staff to teach them everything there is to learn about our EMR, but I think it's important on the first day for them to at least get logged into it. I want them logged into everything the first day. And to accomplish that, after they're done meeting with somebody uh, from the office to kind of get them logged in and make sure that they're comfortable getting around in the EMR, I get with them and I call it nerd work (laughs) with James. Um, I, 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 that's what I call it to myself, but on their schedule, it'll say it with James on that day. And that gives me time to flip in their orientation binder to the page that has all the apps on it that they need to have installed on their device. And if you're a smaller company and they have, and we're providing that device form, it might already have all the apps on it, but if they're having to use their own phone, then this will help them. And it's not just a list of names, but there are icons and of what it will look like either in the Google store or the Apple app store. So they can visualize and see this page that has like nine or 10 apps on it, depending on their role. And they can just start searching for them and get them all downloaded onto their phone. And I'll teach them how to create a separate, separate screen for those to go on. If they don't know how I'm pretty much just about the techiest person in the place. So I just decided this would just be something I would do for all of our new staff. I would just sit down with them for an hour or so and make sure they get logged into everything. So that way at the end of the first day, they have logged in to all of their apps, every single one of them. They've downloaded them all. They've logged into them. I've showed them some basic tips and tricks in there so that they feel acclimated to all of that. And they're kind of just done, right? Uh, so then on Wednesday, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I'm having to clear my throat a lot this morning. Um, so that's that's what the Tuesday looks like, okay? And then Wednesday is IDT. So that's I do this on purpose so that the next morning it's all their life is already scheduled out. I just find this makes that first week easy for us in leadership as well. Tuesday's completely mapped out. They didn't start on Monday. And I, and a lot of people are like, "Well, they're going to lose lose money for that day and not get a full check." Look, I'm not taking that on. All right. I'm not responsible for our new for new people's budgeting and how they ended their last job and how much money they have coming in. And if they can have, you know, a week that's going to be a day short or whatever that that's for them on their end to figure out. And I'm not trying to be heartless here, but but this is about creating a a nice, seamless entry into our organization. So Wednesday is IDT and we do it in the morning. So it's great because their second day of orientation, they get to meet everybody. They get to meet the whole team and our aides even come to our IDT. So literally they're going to meet almost everybody in the whole organization on their second day. So it's really great. We can go around the room and have everybody introduce themselves after. So after IDT, I usually try to send them with maybe social worker, chaplain, 
or, the, you know, they can drive separately and do a couple of visits. I think this is pretty fluid based on who you're going to hire and for what role. Somebody who's been in hospice for years probably doesn't need to ride around with a chaplain or social worker, but somebody who's brand new to hospice absolutely should. So, you know, you might get somebody to go straight to with their nurse. Um, Thursday, I definitely have them ride with the nurse, but something that we've started to do um, that I think has been really good is we do what we call, quote, weekly touch with new staff. And what that is, and we've picked Thursdays. I tried doing it on Fridays, and that was just a horrible idea. But we will meet with a new employee every week for at least the first four weeks that they are with us. And we will schedule that out as part of, before they even show up, that's one of the items on the checklist, is the weekly touch with the new employee. And we're doing Thursdays at like 3 o'clock in the afternoon just to say, how did your week go? How you how are you doing? Do you have any questions, concerns? And we'll do that every week for the first four weeks because we can use that to go to, before we even have the meeting, we can pull up their visits and see how their documentation is going. I've just discovered that the more you can address um, problems or issues in the first four weeks, you're more likely to keep them even longer. And because you've dealt with anything that they didn't understand or, or they can provide you with some feedback on the program and how it's going and what their orientation has been like, just that weekly touch. And, and at the end of four weeks, if you're like, I think they're struggling with the EMR or having issues over here, over there, you can extend that for a couple more weeks if you want. But I've found that so far the nurses and, and social workers that I've put through this program have really appreciated that weekly meeting in the office to review the previous week to see how things are going. We've really been able to, to um, you know, address any issues or problems. So that's a quick rundown of what our start looks like for in our hospice for new orientees that we have put together. So the the final one that I built and this is going kind of long but hey there's a pause button and you're probably in and out of visits anyway listening to this listening to me ramble like this. Um but uh I want to talk a little bit about the admissions process. This is something I just finished building and this took me a good three weeks as well and to light a fire under me after about a week of working on it I decided to go ahead and schedule the training two weeks away so it really lit a fire under me to get this going right away to get this training in place and to get it all built because, well, guess what? You got two weeks. You put two weeks on yourself, James. Uh, sometimes we just got to put schedules on ourselves and commit to something so we'll get it done. And when I started the meeting, I said, perfect is the enemy of good enough. So this training is good enough for now and it's not perfect. And we will work on it and get it better as we move along. And so, and I just did the training this week. So I'm going to work my way through this final area and uh, give you my thoughts and what I did.
All right. I had to mute it for a second there. Okay. So number one, I had no idea how much work this was going to take. Like I've never tried to sit down and build a, an admission program from start to finish before. I mean, I, I have a general idea of what pieces needed to be in there. And again, I'm not saying the organization I'm at didn't have a process in place, but I wanted to take it to a deeper level that had a lot more um, intentional communication built into it. Uh, because what organization doesn't need better communication? Everybody needs better communication. And so uh, it, this was this was a ton of work, a lot of work. And I didn't know how much work it would be. But what in the end, here's what we ended up doing was I ended up creating three ring binders for home and facility patients. We were using the paper, uh, you know, the 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 folders, the paper folders for patients in homes. And I just found that they were getting tore up, misplaced, lost. Uh, Our patients, our home patients were really having issues with finding how to call us. And I I get that it needs to be on the fridge and the magnet and all this stuff. But, But I'm just, over the years, I've just come to the opinion that you got to have real binders in people's homes because those things don't get lost very easily. They find their way most of the time, 90-10 rule, they find their way into an area that's easy to reference and find. So we went ahead and decided to do binders for home and facility, which, which it's a little bit pricey, but our goal here is to, to put forth a sense of quality uh, intentionality. Uh, I, I describe it as consistent and a, a, a consistent and repeatable experience. Like that was, that's real important to me for our patients to have this consistent, you know, our referrals that we get from places for, I want them to come back to whoever sent us the referral, the family or whatever, and say, man, you know, or, or like if it's at a nursing home or whatever, but to say, man, that organization, like they just have this repeatable experience. Like we know exactly what to expect from them. And it's the same every single time. Uh, even, even if some of the stuff you're doing isn't super timely, if they know when to expect it and you always hit that target, I think you can still have a happy referral source. Um, so we have the home binders and facility binders both. And so I thought it would be interesting to share with you some of the contents that are in this thing. Um, <clears throat> and, and this, like I said, this ended with an all staff meeting. And so I'm going to share with you some of the things that I wanted to accomplish in this meeting. But before I do that, I want to share with you what's in the binder. Cause you know, me and my checklists, um, So here's just a quick rundown of, let me look here. Okay, I'll do the rundown of the facility binders that we did and the thought process behind it. So obviously a a full color binder cover that has our information on it. I put the admission checklist in there for the nurses. So this is like their admission packet. And the instructions are to yank out the papers in it that don't need to stay with the patient. Okay. So like your binder has a cover on it. 
There's an admission checklist for the nurse so they can go down this checklist and make sure they have everything completed. There is a clinical data sheet. So if you've been listening to this show, you've heard me mention the clinical data sheet, which is you can find it at confessionsofahospicenurse.net in the downloadable tools section and with video on how to use it. So I'll try to put that in the show notes. But I put this clinical data sheet in every single one of our admission binders. So the admission kit is a binder now. And the nurse can use that clinical data sheet for these patients who feel kind of borderline, like they're like, I don't know. So they can use my clinical data sheet to really go in depth on what the patient looks like now versus six months ago. And it just puts a lot of, of information on that for them to, uh, you know, they can get it all mapped out on this this uh, spreadsheet and fill it all out. And a lot of times by the time you get done with that, you're like, this is, yeah, no, this patient probably qualifies and they call the doctor and they can review it with them. Um, then I implemented an admission email. So, uh, I included a template in the, um, binder and this email is what the nurse is expected to send out as they're admitting the patient. Once the patient has been admitted and the doctor says, yes, they qualify, they will send out an email to all staff. And in the subject line, it will say admission, John Doe. And inside there, it will have their address, phone number of their caregiver. It, it just has multiple different items. I'm not going to go over it all here because we're starting to run long, but, um, it just it has everything in that email, the disposition of the comfort kit, whether they refused it, whether they want it, has it been ordered, what's going on with the comfort kit, um, DME that's needed, any special instructions, like there's a mean dog, make sure they put it away, just all of that stuff. And they send that email out to all staff. Um, my big push at this organization is I want all patients coming and going to be updated and notified to all staff in real time. Uh, even if it's over the weekend, the weekend staff will send out an all staff email that says death Jane Doe and in the body, the email, the time and, and all that kind of stuff. Like I want real time. If a patient goes to the hospital and discharges that way, I want an email going out. If they go into respite, I want an email that says Jane Doe into respite today. When they come back home, I want an email that goes out to everybody that says Jane Doe's back home. All, all that kind of stuff. Okay, so admission email template, the DN, a copy of a DNR is in there. The billing notification form that you need to turn into the business office where you fill that out and put whether or not they're private pay or room and board through hospice. There's a tab on there for call hospice first, which is like, hey, we're available 24-7. Call us. It's on obnoxious orange paper. We have the coordinated task plan of care that's required in Missouri that you fill out for your nursing home patients and have a staff member sign. We have a staff visit log that's in that binder so that when we visit, we can log in and say, you know, here's the date and time that I was in the building. We have a copy of Missouri Medicaid consents because Missouri requires those consents. We also have a copy of paper consents. We can, we have electronic consents in our EMR, but if an LPN goes out there, they don't have access to those electronic consents to get them signed. Uh, or if the computer's down, like I never want 
a computer to get in the way of somebody being admitted to hospice. So our admission binder has paper consents in it. Then we have our patient handbook that is required that has all the information and appeals and all that stuff that you have to have. Then we have a copy of the Missouri advanced directives that go in there. And then we have a, a series that I've taken my, what to expect from your hospice nurse and turned it into a booklet that we are putting in all of our facility binders and our home binders. Um, And if you haven't read that series, what to expect from your hospice nurse, uh, I have decided to turn that into a a PDF that um, that we can put in our binders. And so that way, if a family member or somebody is really struggling and needs a little help to understand, like the comfort kit or why we're trying to stop some meds, some of those articles, then the nurse can just flip to that in that binder and say, Hey, you know, here's a, here's a quick little blurb on, on morphine and lorazepam and how we use them and why we use them. So that's something brand new that I've entered in there. So I'm kind of curious to see how, uh, how that is what people think of it because I've never used something like that before, but I think it's going to be beneficial. So I want to kind of review the all staff meeting that we have or that we had just this week and give you some thoughts. Um, but I think the meeting went well. I was pretty nervous about it in general because, uh, you know, I mean it, it, the content, I think I ended up with like 18 slides and I was really nervous that it was going to take me forever to get through all of them. And, uh, and I set a 90 minute time limit because man, anything over an hour just makes me nervous. Like I'm going to start losing everybody in the end. I don't think I did. I've gotten some good feedback from everybody that they don't feel like it drug on. Um, but my main message to everybody was that we are really all in this together. And I, I really wanted everybody to understand that it's really about the person next to us, you know? Um, and, and so I, my, one of the very first slides that I used in the training was a scripture verse and it's from Philippians two, three, and four. And I told everybody in the, well, number one, you know, this is hospice and there's definitely a spiritual side to what we do. Every hospice that I've worked at, was fairly friendly towards faith. And, um, and I just told everybody, listen, you don't, you don't have to be a big Bible reader or anything to appreciate some of the verses that are in the Bible. Like there's just some good advice for living well in the Bible. And so I picked Philippians two, three through four, and and I'm going to read this to you and tell you and share with you what I shared with my team. And I just, So let me just read this to you. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And I said, here's the thing. I said, I'm reading that, and you might think I'm talking about our patients, but I'm not. I'm talking about how we interact with each other. 
that every single thing we do impacts our teammate. Stay with us. We'll be right back. If you are new to hospice or considering hospice, then in September of 2022, I created the website for you. I created thehospicenursingcommunity.com. What started out as a simple community has become a large library of video trainings. Thehospicenursingcommunity.com now has over 45 video coaching sessions covering subjects such as bedside charting, the hospice comfort kit, the four levels of care, how to interview for a hospice job, and so much more. I just completed a seven-part series for case managers, and I'm getting ready to start a series on the PPS scale. The hospicenursingcommunity.com is available for just $4.99 per month for full access. Head over to thehospicenursingcommunity.com for hope, help, and encouragement. And remember, hospice nursing doesn't get easier. You just get better at it. So let's get better at it together. And if we start looking at all of our work through the lens of how does this affect my team? Am I helping move us along to more success or am I dragging us down? Or I, I hate to say, maybe I shouldn't say dragging us down, but am I, but am I putting roadblocks up either intentionally or unintentionally? And if we begin to look around the room, I think this is good advice. Don't let's not do anything from selfish ambition, you know, and, and do we hear that preach now at all? <laughs> we don't. And it's, but in humility, count others more significant than ourselves. And I said, look around this room for a minute. What if we all started treating each other more and counting each other more important than ourselves? Isn't that going to change the way we all interact with each other, that we're trying to put each other first? And, and I just have this philosophy, and I haven't talked about it on here, I don't think, at all. But I, I've been in and out of enough different organizations to rec to be able to kind of step back and look and say, what is the hierarchy of importance at this organization? You know, I've been places where I felt like the top of the list was legal. Like we run everything through legal before we do anything else. So legal, are we going to get sued? And then financial, can we afford it? And then the patient's. And then the staff are here at the bottom. Like, this is the machine you've gotten into. It might chew you up a little bit and spit you out, but welcome to the show. You know, welcome to this machine. I've been there, okay? I think it should look like this. It should be staff, patient, and then money. Not money, patient, staff. Not patient, money, staff. I think it should be staff, patient, money. Now, we have to have margins. The old quote, where there is no margin, there is no ministry, applies to business. So we have to have margins. So I'm not sh saying that we can just throw money around all over the place and we just don't care. No, not saying that, because a lot of my job is about the money. Like, I'm learning as an administrator, you get the bills, you either approve them or deny them for services to the patient. You know, I here I am tracking room and board. Like, the money is important. But I really believe 
that if we take care of our staff, if we take care of each other, the patient is going to benefit from that. Like, I think you can actually make your staff priority patient second and the money third. I think the money will take care of itself. If you take care of the staff, they have their, you know, work-life balance in place. They get a good onboarding experience. Um, we're checking with them. We genuinely care about them. We don't try to care or we don't pretend to care, but we actually care. We actually see the people around us as important or made in God's image or whatever you need to do to begin to see others more important than yourself. I think the more we take care of each other, I think the patients will get taken care of very well and we will grow as an out, you know, we will grow out of that and the money will just take care of it. You know, I just, I don't know. I've just, I've been in enough organizations and I've seen what can happen when you really put a focus on taking care of your staff and, and I've just watched the patients uh, benefit from that because the staff isn't as stressed and the staff feels like their leadership actually cares about them and they're not just a tool to be moved around. And I've just, it's just, I'm just watching it happen. And I'm watching it happen where we are now as our staff is starting to see each other. One of the big things that I did in that training was talk about how hard it is to be a liaison and a salesperson. And I'm like, let's do everything we can to help them be successful, especially if they get their first referral from a source that they have been working for months that, you know, how can we jump? How can we make that happen as fast as possible and not worry about whose job is what? I, that was just an important, I don't know. I just, I'm hoping that our marketing team felt really, really supported at the end of that meeting. And and there's so much that went into that meeting that I can't really share here. Um, but it was 90 minutes, and I really feel like everybody had an opportunity to maybe appreciate each other just a little bit more. And I... I really want to continue to cultivate the relationship. So before the meeting, I made everybody listen to two of my podcast episodes, which was kind of weird because I don't talk about my show at all at work, but I made everybody listen to the admissions uh, episode and the when sales met clinical episode. And I made them listen to both of those before we started the meeting, because I wanted them to get an idea of the culture that I was going to try to build here. And I think it went well. I got a lot of good feedback. And I think some people think he did that because he's going to make money. And the fact is, I don't make any money on this show. There's most most podcasters don't unless they have a fancy, um, you know, unless they're the big time and they have like uh, you know fancy advertisements for some corporate sponsor, but somebody like me, not a chance. The the people I host this show with, I get little emails from them. You could be making forty dollars a month on your show if you just click this button. So even they aren't promising any money. So when I ask the people I work with to listen to a show, it's so they can learn more about what I'm trying to accomplish there, not so I can make some money. Huh. I keep having to mute myself because my voice is just giving me trouble today. 
Well, listen, this has run pretty long. And I just appreciate everybody who's been dialing this up and listening and all the feedback I seem to get all the time. I just really appreciate everybody uh, for being fans of the show and reaching out to me on uh, on all my different social media, uh, on Facebook. I get some folks who follow me on TikTok, even though I don't do a whole lot there. But uh, would you consider joining the hospice nursing community at the hospice nursing community.com? Um, or you can visit, visit confessions of a hospice nurse.net for additional material. You can call and leave me a voicemail at 816-834-9191. You can text that number as well. You can email me at james at confessions of a hospice nurse. .net, and I will reply to you. I don't really get a whole lot of emails, and it would be fun to hear from you. Um, I don't know. It's just been exciting what is happening with the show and uh, having Shelly Henry on here. I'm working on some other interviews and guests. If you know of somebody you think I should have on the show that you would like to hear from, don't be afraid to make those kind of recommendations either. I would just love to get it from you. Hey, just remember, hospice doesn't get easier. You just get better at it. And let's get better at it together. This has been Episode 38 of the Hospice Nursing Podcast for August 20th, 2023.